This is a Federal News Network podcast. As it does every year, the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General publishes the top management and performance challenges facing the department. This year, the IG found that HHS faces significant challenge when it comes to data, managing it, and using it. Here with details, the senior counselor to the OIG, Andrew Van Landingham. Mr. Van Landingham, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about this important document. And looking at the data challenges with HHS, which I guess were kind of made worse by the amount of data they had to ingest in the pandemic response, you found that the challenges fall into two basic buckets. Tell us what those were. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, that the way to sum up the broad challenge of use and sort of protection of data at HHS is best highlighted by the sort of dual challenge they faced during the pandemic. On one hand, uh, in order to have a good public health response, HHS needs to be able to share its data with a range of partners, other federal agencies, state and local public health departments, and American citizens. But at the same time, they also need to protect its data. And I think as everyone who listens to your show knows, cybersecurity is a chief challenge that the federal government and really the country faces when protecting from adversarial attacks that have just been growing really over the last 18 months during the pandemic. And I want to get to that one second. Let's talk about the first issue, which is sharing the data. And in some sense, that's part of a perhaps larger set of issues with respect to being able to make the proper decisions based on data, which, as you know, is law and policy for the federal government under the Data Act and other things. And so it sounds like it just got worse because of the volume and the number of decisions that had to be made. Would that be a fair way to put it? Yeah, I think it definitely got more complex, I think, is the way I would frame it for HHS. I mean, certainly COVID is an unprecedented challenge for HHS, who's the primary federal agency that has to deal with pandemic response, both through the Food and Drug Administration, the National Institutes of Health, but also other agencies that folks may not know a lot about, like the Administration for Public Response, ASPR, that helps lead across federal agencies in response. And they need to be able to share data with their partners across a range of issues, right? Hospital capacity, lab testing, and those are all key things that the public health response needs in order to be effective, regardless of what level you're looking at. And so if folks remember last year, HHS quickly stood up HHS Protect to sort of solve an issue that they saw where they weren't able to get public health data quickly from hospitals, especially. And so this is, I think, a good example that's in the top management challenge that we referenced, where the intention was great. HHS knew it needed to improve its ability to both ingest and then share data, and HHS Protect was the solution. The problem was trying to stand up a massive database for hospital public health reporting during the middle of a pandemic does pose some issues. And then in a survey we did, a few hundred hospitals across the country, one consistent theme we heard at OIG was just the burden of data reporting that put on hospitals during the middle of a pandemic while they're struggling to just treat patients and then also adapt to the changing public health reporting requirements. So it just shows the magnitude of the problem that the department faced really beginning last year. And which component of the department was responsible for this? Because you've got some really big elements. You've got CMS. I'm assuming it's CDC and not NIH. Am I correct? Actually, this is pretty interesting, Tom. For HHS Protect, the chief information officer of HHS was actually the lead component in building HHS Protect. Now, it was just announced that I believe a few weeks ago by the department that that is going to be moving back to CDC. But I think the other thing to point out is the HHS Protect system wasn't the only way HHS was getting public health data in its door and then reporting it out to its partners. Like you said, CMS does have some responsibility in collaboration with CDC to get nursing home data. CMS reports on that. And then laboratory data, 
you know, from state and public health labs and from private labs mainly goes to CDC. So again, another challenge that we point out is this sort of siloed approach to public health data reporting within the department does pose issues. The department's collecting data from multiple different entities in multiple different ways, and it makes it hard to stitch it together in a cohesive manner so that we're providing clear, consistent public health data to folks. It really is a heavy burden, heavy lift for the department. We're speaking with Andrew Van Landingham. He is the senior counselor to the Office of Inspector General at Health and Human Services. And this was not a traditional audit report in the way the OIG normally operates. So did you have recommendations for them on this front or how does that all work? This, as you mentioned at the outset, is an annual document that we put out and it's part of the department's annual financial statement. And really, unlike our audit reports or studies that are specific to one program or one issue, This top management challenge document looks broadly across the department at key issues that face a range of the operating divisions or staff divisions, as we call them in HHS, and crosses programs. And so as your listeners are looking at, well, what are the big challenges that cross HHS? Our top management challenges document really hits on key issues that don't just affect CMS and NIH and FDA, but really the entire operations of the department. Things like health equity, obviously a key issue on the front of mind for a lot of folks. That's not just something for Medicare and Medicaid to address. It's across a range of programs. The department has a lot of different levers to pull. To address that challenge obviously will take a lot of work from folks, but it's also things like financial integrity. HHS, obviously with the CMS, is a large chunk of federal expenditures in terms of the healthcare services, But HHS is also the largest grant-making agency in the government and the second largest contracting agency. So we're talking about $2.8 trillion worth of expenditures alone in fiscal year 2021. And that's a giant lift for any department, for any entity to manage correctly. And we know that there are a lot of financial integrity issues the department has made progress on, but a lot of risks that they still face moving forward, like the Medicaid improper payment rate being over 20%. There's a lot in this document that I think folks will find useful, again, that crosses HHS in a way that our audits and studies and evaluations don't. It really gives a broad lens, a good, bigger contextual perspective. And getting back to the data protection side of the issue in that challenge five, let's call it the data challenge, is HHS performing at least as well as average with respect to cybersecurity of its data, or do they need some work, do you think? Well, the top management challenge document doesn't actually grade HHS. Our FISMA, our annual FISMA work does look at that. And our FISMA work has found that HHS has made some progress on cybersecurity front, but has some room to improve as well. Here, I think it's important to point out the, the sort of complexity, again, of the cybersecurity challenge facing HHS. You know, on one hand, we know because of the pandemic, HHS has been targeted specifically because of the important role they play in the response. At the same time, the government is really doing its best to try and improve cybersecurity across all agencies, right? The president issued an executive order earlier this year that really is a significant step forward in improving cybersecurity across the federal government. And just implementing those provisions as folks at the Department of Homeland Security and the specific agency CISA work to implement that, HHS is going to really have to change its culture and organizational setup for cybersecurity to meet the spirit of that executive order. It's going to be a heavy lift moving forward, but they could have huge positive impacts for improving the cybersecurity of the department. And when you deliver that kind of message to management that you've got to change your whole culture around something and you really got to get up to speed, how do they take it? I think the department leadership sees this document as a useful tool to, again, look broadly across the agencies, right? So often we look at a problem in terms of it's a Medicare problem or NIH problem, but something like cybersecurity really does benefit from looking at it from a whole department perspective. 
And so I think they see this document as a good roadmap and call to action that can really drive interest, prioritization, the things that you need to really make change at that level and that scale. And so something like you know cybersecurity, which has traditionally been siloed within each optive, each major agency within HHS basically has its own CIO, which is a great model, but that just means that at the end of the day, they're all making individual choices around improving cybersecurity. And I think that's where we're seeing some of the risk pop up. And so as the federal government writ large takes measures to really improve cybersecurity through the rising tide lifts all boats, sure. making sure that everyone across HHS is responsible is something that the departmental leadership is really going to have in their sights to do. And so I think that they use this document as a way to really understand it from a level that most audits, most evaluations don't necessarily get at. It's useful in that sort of perspective. And with respect to the difficulty of that platform for collecting data stood up early in the pandemic, did you also talk to some of the external stakeholders, that is the large medical institutions that had to do the reporting to give you kind of full sense of the insight there? Yeah, absolutely. I think, as I mentioned, we did a survey of a few hundred hospital systems talking to their administrators, trying to really understand a a range of challenges uh, related to the pandemic. And one thing that was brought up quite frequently was this idea of the burden of reporting data and the number of changes that they had to address. I think, as we can all imagine, it's not simply, you know, flipping a switch and all of a sudden the data flows. A lot of this required changing the electronic health record systems to support reporting working with their IT vendors to make that happen, all while balancing the demands of responding to a pandemic. And so it was really good insights, I think, for us to understand the sort of long-term planning that's needed to respond to a public health emergency. Again, something else that's addressed in our top management challenges, this idea that the department can have these systems ready to go, or at least plans in place to stand up these systems for future pandemics so that that burden is not reduced to something that hospitals and others need to change in the midst of responding to the pandemic, but it's something that can be stood up in advance and understood in advance to ease that burden, improve that data collection, and ultimately improve the sort of transparency and accountability around not just pandemic response, but also public health emergency response too. Yeah, so really, I would think any agency would want to read this because in some ways, these cross-agency boundaries, these are universal issues. Just a quick question, does data collection from industry, does that have to go through Paperwork Reduction Act considerations? Uh, it depends, right? It depends on exactly what the department is asking the industry to do. So there's no universal yes to that. There are some you know, regulatory hurdles, certainly, to uh, collecting information from industry like the Paperwork Reduction Act. But there are certain exceptions uh, the department can get around using that. But to your point, there is a larger federal data strategy that OMB issued just a few weeks ago. I think it shows a great linear progression of, of not only HHS needs to do, but a lot of federal governments. And really, it starts with getting the basics right, getting governance right, getting the sort of infrastructure around data right. And it's the stuff that doesn't make headlines, and it's not the stuff that you know you testify to Congress about. But things like data governance and infrastructure are the sort of singles and doubles that the government needs to hit in order to make significant progress in improving both data collection, but also data publication and transparency. And there are certain pockets even within HHS that have made strides. You know, CMS has done a lot to make its data more available to both providers and to its patients. And so using those sort of nuts and bolts approaches, at least initially, will help us eventually get to an era where the federal government can better leverage artificial intelligence and machine learning 
because that data is more consistent, more standardized, more accessible. And those sorts of technologies really need those large standardized data sets to work best. And making progress now on those nuts and bolts issues will help you know, make sure that by 2030, the federal government is really making progress on advanced use of data. And as a baseball fan, I like your singles and doubles analogy. That's how you score runs in the long run. Andrew Van Landingham is senior counselor to the Office of Inspector General at the Department of Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate the opportunity. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. 
and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> um, 
During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Top tech companies like Intel have a secret to their success. They get the best talent, reliable infrastructure, and save on costs by expanding in Ohio, the new Silicon Heartland. Learn how your business can succeed in Ohio. Visit successinohio.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.